Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 410. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Graham Alcott, Graham's CEO of Think Productive, offering practical support to organizations that want to increase productivity. He's also a multiple-time best-selling author, having written the very successful How to Be a Productivity Ninja, Worry Less, Achieve More, and Love What You Do. In this conversation with Graham, we discuss his approach to time management, the keys to being present and purposeful, his do habit, and the need for self-awareness, as well as some vital tips on how to manage the hell that is your email inbox and how to achieve and keep the magical objective of a zero inbox. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider dropping a quick rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Graham Alcott, great to have you on the show. We have been introduced to each other by the marvelous Sophie Devonshire, CEO of Marketing Society. And um, we have many things to discuss. I'm really glad to have you on the show. You are multi, multi best-selling author. And, um, and you've been, I think it seems to be fair to say, on a productivity binge. You are the, the ninja of productivity. In your own words, Graham, how would you like to describe yourself? Well, that's funny. So um, Productivity Ninja is essentially the name of my, my main book. And so that's probably the thing that I'm best known for um it's funny all the all the different words that you use to describe yourself right so uh we've just been working on this media kit and it's like graham is an entrepreneur and speaker and author and it's like i find a lot of those words quite icky quite sort of uncomfortable to be like oh yeah that's me it feels a bit sort of show-offy um and i don't like a lot of those words so it's a good question but i guess uh yeah founder of a business um author of a few different books um but i think a good human is probably how i'd most like i that's how i wish i could be described in uh in linkedin and everywhere else that's lovely well before you got in i mean running your own business as i understand it you were working in in a more philanthropic type of environment right uh yes although i would throw the question back slightly by saying I think the work that I do now even though it's a private business has a very uh, caring um, side to it because it's all about helping people um, but yeah my background before this business was I worked in in charities uh, the other irony of this is that sometimes charities are the most bitchy places to work of any organization in the world which a lot of people uh, are quite surprised by but yeah I started uh, my work around promoting volunteering and then at a really young age I was 26 I became the chief executive of a small national charity called Student Volunteering England and I literally was like two or three weeks into the job and the phone goes on the desk in in, in my office and it's I pick it up and it and it's uh hello is that Graham yes um, it's the Department of Education the minister wants to see you and that was kind of like the theme of that job for three or four years was kind of lobbying government ministers. Um, it was a time uh, very different from today, um, back in the sort of early 2000s, where we had a government that was very interested in how to build community and how to promote volunteering. And 
um, a lot of these things that don't seem to be on the government's radar anymore. Um, and so, yeah, I found myself at a really young age being asked to, you know, asked to provide answers to these really difficult questions by people in very senior parts of government. And I remember one day, I think it might have been like a, is it might have even been like a, a Saturday morning, but being sat in uh, a, a certain government minister's office, literally writing a paragraph to go in legislation. And it was just like, it was me in my chair and the minister just sat in the room, just trying to figure this paragraph out. And it, stuff like that was just, um, it was insane. And I should not have been uh, doing that at such a young age. Um, you know, sort of in, in hindsight, I kind of wish that stuff had come to me later when I had a bit more uh, nous and skills about me. But um, it, was a, it was an amazing learning experience. Well, I think it's worth a round of applause. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, nice. Um, so you are a fan of the Toronto Bloomin' Blue Jays. I yeah. Mean, well, how on earth did that happen? Tell me, Graham. Oh, you've done your research. Yeah, I'm a big baseball geek. Um, I'm a big football geek as well, actually. I've been a, a season ticket holder at Aston Villa for probably 20, 25 years. Um, and I go with my dad and it's a really nice regular outlet. And it's also a really nice connection back with my my home turf because I live in Brighton down by the sea, but I'm I'm originally a Midlander and I'm definitely still a, a Midlander at heart, you know. So it's nice to sort of reconnect with rugby where I grew up and with Birmingham. But yeah, the Blue Jays that came about. I had I knew nothing about baseball, but I was working um, in Toronto. My my first book uh, was published in Canada by Penguin, and so I had a couple of meetings at different times with Penguin in Toronto, where I just found myself in Toronto with very little to do in the evening. I didn't know anyone there. And so I just thought, ah, oh, the Toronto Blue Jays, like, let, let's go and watch some baseball. And the first couple of times I went, I thought, this is fun and I like the spectacle of it, but I have no idea what's going on. You like, the, then, wait, wait, Graham, you must, you must mean you liked the beer and the hot dogs. Well, um, to be honest, I don't drink I do drink, but I don't drink at baseball. That's sort of become a oh, thing. That's shitty beer um, they serve. Yeah, well, I just I I can't get I can't get on board with a beer costing twenty dollars. Like that's the Midlander in me, right? It's still too tight for that. But um, and also I'm veggie, so I don't eat any of the food, right? Um, but I suppose the spectacle, just in terms of like the way they hype the crowd and the the sort of kiss cam that comes on this big scoreboard and like just the general kind of feel of it was like, it kind of felt sort of exotic in a way, you know, cause it's like this big American sports experience and stuff. I just really enjoyed it. You had to be careful about who you sat beside then, if there was the kiss meter or the kiss. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I really enjoyed just being there and the atmosphere of it and stuff. And I just found it really, really exciting. But it was only when I went and got talking to, I, I was sat next to this guy who, he worked for KPMG and he had he had taken three or four of his clients to this game and i was in the seat next to them and none of his clients cared at all they just were not interested and so he got talking to me and i you know told him the story of my book and everything so he was really kind of fascinated on a on a work front but then he said how much do you know about baseball and i said very little and he said okay let me tell you and he took great pleasure in spending the whole evening telling me about all the different tactics and how, you know, there were different matchups for lefty pitchers to righty hitters and all this kind of stuff and statistics and, you know, all the, the, the kind of more cerebral side of baseball. And it turns out it's not just people playing rounders in what look like pajamas. It's like, it's, it's really, it's really complicated. 
And, you know, the more I unpeeled these onion layers around it, the more fascinated I was with it. So it's a very geeky sport. Um, Moneyball, the Brad Pitt film, is probably a really good place to start if you're just kind of curious with that. Um, and there's also a really great book called The Shift, which sort of takes Moneyball onto the next uh, kind of level in, in, in the last couple of years. But yeah, it's a fascinating sport. And I, you know, my football team, Aston Villa, like we quite often have a thing which is like, you don't choose Villa, you are chosen, right? So it's like a thing that's handed down usually by your parents. And so I just had the same attitude to baseball. It was like, this is where I landed. So this is now my team. Like, I don't get to choose. It's just my attitude to it, you know, and uh, probably I should have picked, you know, the Yankees or the Red not, Sox. Not the winningest team. Yeah, someone, because the Blue Jays are in a league with the Yankees and the Red Sox, who are like the two richest teams. So like, basically, it's really hard for the Blue Jays to ever make the playoffs. So it's like, I've picked another sport where I'm just long suffering as a fan, but like, but I love it. And I, I you know, the last few years, it's not happening at the moment, but last few years I've been sort of getting out there a couple of times a year and watching about 12 or 13 games in 12 or 13 days and you know doing a bit of work alongside it but you know primarily it's it's you know me following the Toronto Blue Jays around America wherever they are at the time. That's funny well I, I used to tour as well but I followed a rock and roll band huh. my time. So which band? Well the band the only band you would follow at my age that back in those days uh, the Grateful Dead. Oh, wow. Okay. How many times do you think you've seen The Grateful Dead? Well, glad you use the word think because um, there's a little <laughs> bit of fogginess to the answer, but roughly 200 times. I'd say. Oh, wow. That's and cool. I think I can consider myself a serious fan. So, Graham, amongst the things I want to talk to you about, you have this workshop and, um, and, and you talk about how successful it is. I love workshops. I, I, it sounds like you do workshops in a particularly useful and effective way. People need to do workshops, I think, in order to get change to happen somehow with what you're doing. I was wondering if you had in your mind, uh, what is the secret sauce that, that makes it so successful? Is there something within it that you can you know, give, give, give out to, to people who are do trainings to make theirs better? Huh, that's a good question. Um, so Think Productive has, we have a whole range of workshops um, and they're titled things like getting your inbox to zero and how to be a productivity ninja and how to fix meetings, you know, so they're all very practical in their intent and in their promise and very simple and clear in their promise. And I think that's probably a good starting point around what what is the secret source. Yeah, how do you make success if you if you set up a target that is achievable? and clear that's a that's a very good starting point that's a great starting point and then i think the other thing is you've also got to start and acknowledge where people are at right so i think this for me has been the last decade or so with 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 think productive my company a big theme in that has been how so many of the books that are written about time management and so many of the approaches to, to training and workshops around this topic ultimately have at their heart this assumption that like, here's how to run the perfect day, right? Here's how to be perfect. And then just aim to be perfect and then it will all be great. And I just think it totally misses the point for a lot of people because ultimately human beings are weird, right? And ultimately, we are full of biases and failings and foibles and all kinds of things that are just flawed. And so I think you've got to start there and you've got to start with, 
recognizing that we won't all get this right 100% of the time. Um, so I do all the stuff that's in my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. Do I do it all the time? No, like I do all of it 98% of the time. Um, but I screw this stuff up regularly. And um, I think that needs to be acknowledged and inherent in all of this stuff, right? Like we're not robots and machines, we're, we're humans and we have bad days. And we, that we, as humans, we have limitation, right? So I think, uh, so one of the, the characteristics of the productivity ninja is human, not superhero. But the bigger point is about saying, when you do all the stuff that's in this book or, or practice the stuff that we teach in the workshop, you will look like you're a superhero to everyone else in your in your building, in your organization, right? It'll look like you've got everything, uh, you've got your stuff together, you really know what you're doing, and it will feel like you have some kind of secret source or superpower. And ultimately you don't, you just have good habits. And so a ninja is a human, not a superhero, is basically like, you know, a ninja has good habits and tools and skills and, and weapons and everything else, but like they're still a human. And so we have to kind of, you know, recognize that sense of limitation um, that we have and be kind to ourselves around that too. Yeah, one of the things I really liked in your book or the one that I read, because you have so many, uh, which was um, on the, with the Productivity Ninja, which was this notion of self-awareness. And uh, you, you talk about that specifically, as I recall, in the Do Habit chapter. Yeah. So the, and it's something I think is really fundamentally important in today's society in general, and specifically in, in your Do Habit, the idea but you're just talking about it there with your sort of awareness about not being perfect. How does one train self-awareness or how does one, you know, communicate, transmit the need to be more self-aware as part of the process? Do you mean, how do you, how do you learn? How do you, how do you develop practices that, enable you to be more self-aware is that what you mean yeah, and in essence i mean to the extent that you are being self-aware you say i'm 98 percent effective in what i do when you notice you're doing the two percent that's when you check in you say all right well that's part of that okay now what do i do with that do i try to improve that or not and, and i'm and i'm going to have that discussion with myself so yeah. i would say you're practicing self-awareness for others, the issue is we go into any of these skills, whether it's improving my zero inbox or my my doing and not just thinking. How does one gauge one's real self-awareness? I think this, this idea is intellectually interesting. People can read it on a page, but then they just sort of glance at, yeah, yeah I'm self-aware. Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe there's a contradiction here in that I think most people who are my experience is that most people who are really self-aware if you ask them that question they would say i'm not very self-aware at all right <laughs> so i think it, it's also another one of those sort of peeling an onion things where the more questions you have the fewer answers you know the more i know the more i know i don't know yeah exactly that so i think you know i i like to try to be self-aware and also i'm sure that there are massive blind spots that i have and things that i'm missing and uh you know huge flaws that i don't see in myself um and i think that's always the first that that's the first starting point is not cool i've solved several self-awareness right um, but i think there's a few different ways that you can think about this practically one is mindfulness um when i 
wrote how to be a productivity ninja, I'd never come across mindfulness. And, and, I, and you published it first in 2014, correct? Uh, yes, I actually wrote it and uh, briefly self-published it before it came out with the current publisher. So it was written at the end of 2012. And I had never really come across mindfulness, but I did live in Brighton. So I kind of knew that meditation was around and was a good thing, but I'd never tried it, tried anything like that. I'd never done yoga at this point um, either and things like that. So I went out to Sri Lanka to write the book because I was running this business and I felt like the only way that I was going to get the full ninja stealth and camouflage that I needed, which by which I mean just being deliberately unavailable and just offline so that I could really focus on the book um, was to just be in a different country with no Wi-Fi and just be like extreme away. So I went to this beach hut in Sri Lanka for a month to write the book. And I didn't know anybody there, you know, and the hosts that I was living with in this beach hut didn't really speak English. So I just had no, like just no conversation really with anyone um, for a long time. But then I was at a bus stop one day and this Buddhist monk um, was waiting at the bus stop with me and we just got chatting and he was, oh, where are you from? Oh, cool. Oh, I like your, I like your robes. Like where are you from? And it turned out he was from a monastery, like two miles from where I was staying. And he invited me there. And I, I learned mindfulness meditation from this Buddhist monk. Um, and what I found was really remarkable was how I would, I would kind of write in the morning for a few hours, then I'd go off and meditate with this monk and then I'd come back. And the extra focus that I was finding later on in the day and how present I was feeling in the work, it, it, the mindfulness was kind of spilling over into the work, right? And so I think mindfulness is a very, so then it became one of the characteristics um, it wasn't going to be in the book at all. And then it just, it was like this gift that just landed at the right time. And I met this guy at the bus stop and there it was. Um, but yeah, so it really felt to me like um, that opened up a whole bunch of tools around how to recognize your own procrastination, your own anxiety, to be thinking more about your own energy levels, which I think is again, really key to scheduling around productivity is scheduling when you have the best energy to, to do the best work. Um, so I think mindfulness is a huge, um, it, it's a huge door to open into, you know, particularly uh, the awarenesses around your own narratives with yourself, the stories you're telling yourself, your own biases um, and, 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 and the things that are perhaps the, uh, more inconvenient or kind of ugly parts of your own thinking, right? Like once you start to get into that, it, I think it helps you to reflect uh, much more and kind of, and then you, and then once you have that information, it's much easier to, to sort of correct course and do things differently. Mm. I love it. So th there are many things in that, but one of the big areas, of course, you talk a lot about is time management. Mm. And um, I, I kind of, I mean, I, I would consider myself hopefully a rather productive individual uh, in that I, if the reflection is, hey, Minta, how do you do everything you do in the day? Well, I manage my time. Yet, and, 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 and so within the, the feeling of productivity, I feel like there's a, a burgeoning issue in society of our rush for productivity and a subsequent or consequential burnout yeah. try to be more productive, fit more into every day and get this stuff done and perform to the level we need to do. So I was wondering in your philosophy, where does, and I would like to cite your bus stop mm -hmm. moment happen. How do you 
manage for that kind of serendipity that obviously had a massive impact on that day, your trip, and the book? Yeah. So the other thing I was going to say about mindfulness, which is which is a nice link here as well. The other the other way to develop self awareness is around uh, rhythms and routines, right? So having a good uh, review process so that every week you're coming back and looking at what you're working on and thinking about about how you're doing that work. Um, I think that's a that's a really useful uh, place to uh, to sort of schedule in uh, the self reflection that you might not do when you're really busy, but just having a time where you're going where you're saying right, this is the couple of hours where I'm going to do quality thinking. I'm going to open up that space for checking in with what I'm working on, but also for self reflection. And so it kind of creates you know, particular routines or space or structure that helps you to uh, to do that self-reflection. And I think, yeah, it's it's the same, you know, coming back to uh, that question, uh, you have to structure in and, and, and really kind of think intentionally um, about things like happy accidents and serendipity and rest and creativity and all these other things, because I think, you know, Productivity is ultimately not about doing more stuff. It's it's actually about doing less stuff. So productivity is about saying no to most things so that you can say yes fully to the things that really matter. You know, that's what making space for what matters really means. And so if you just said, hey, I'm just going to be really productive and, and you didn't have that quality thinking, you would just work 20 hours a day until you burn out, right? And it's like, more emails, more staff, you know, just keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, so, you know, really a lot of what I do is about helping people to take that bigger picture step back and kind of see the, the strategic um, position. And the strategic position is work is one of the things that we have in our lives, but like I want time for baseball and, you know, listen to the Grateful Dead or whatever it is, you know, and 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 family and, you know, smelling the roses and all the stuff that is actually much more um, fulfilling, um, but will just be left behind if we, uh, if we just focus on work. So I kind of, you know, I, I kind of see that stuff as, as part of productivity, right? Like productivity and, uh, and even thinking about it in the, the terminology of time management, you know, yes, we need to allocate the right kind of resources towards our work, but but for me, that isn't about maximizing. That's about about saying, here's where the limit is and here's where the boundary is. And then here's where I'm going to free up space or just, you know, defend really ruthlessly that space so that it is just space. And then I can fill it however I, I choose at those particular times. So I'm very, I'm very bounded around that stuff. Um, I'm pretty good at um, shutting things down at sort of, you know, six o'clock in the evening and not working. I just, I never work weekends. I have an email that goes out on a Sunday night every week called Rev Up for the Week, which the idea is like a positive or productive, um, you know, thought for the week ahead. But I never write those at the weekend. You know, they're all scheduled at a different time. I have social media that goes out over the weekend that is hopefully useful for people, but I don't schedule them. I don't spend time on that at the weekend. So I, you know, I'm quite uh, bounded around that stuff. And even though I haven't worked to, a formal nine to five with a boss for, I don't know, 15 years or so. Um, I still treat it like I'm clocking on and clocking off. I don't let it sort of all encompass my life. That's great. I, the, the thought in my mind, and I'm, I do the same, uh, is, uh, well, we're encouraging others not to turn off if we are giving them on Saturday morning and Saturday evening when they should be with their family. But that, I do the same. So 
thought thoughts in there. So um, I'm wondering whether uh, there's also a, a similar comparable philosophy um, around the concept of chaos to the extent the unexpected is expectedly going to happen. Do you have a, a philosophy with regard to that type of chaos that, you know, best laid plans don't always fall as we wish? Yeah. So one of our ninja characteristics is agility. And, you know, essentially a, a big part of agility is recognizing that, you know, if you're not in crisis right now, like there's one coming. Right. And so I think that's always a great place to start. Um, and essentially what that leads me to is to say, I know there's going to be times which are really rough. It's going to be more difficult for me to structure. It's going to be more difficult for me to think and plan. So I have to do that work, that thinking work when I'm not in a crisis, knowing that that will stand me in good stead when, when that next one hits and I have to drop everything. It's much easier to know. Uh, it's much less stressful to, to drop everything if you know what everything looks like, right? So if I'm leaving these things behind to go and focus on this other thing and solve this client issue or fix this problem or whatever, um, knowing that all the things that I'm, I'm dropping and neglecting are all written down in a really nice format. And then when I come back to it, I'm not, I'm not sat there for a day going, oh, what was I doing and where was I? And I can just really quickly recover, um, really helps. So there's something about, I, th I think the relationship between structure and and chaos in all its forms is really interesting because you know often it's the structure that allows you the chaos of creativity it's the structure that supports you to react well and in an agile well when there's a a, a crisis that you need to go and react to and so like structure's not free you know you have to spend a bit of time getting these kind of organizational systems in place but you know that the time that you invest in it more than pays itself back in terms of the, the payoffs that you get. In my book, I talk about the paradox between the need to quantify, measure, plan, and the space for chaos mm. and, and that creativity, the intuition and, and uh, managing that often, I think, decountenances or, you know, destabilizes people. So one of the things you wrote in your book, um, you've updated it many times. As you say, it's a very practical guide. And as soon as you write a practical thing, then the minutes your paper, you've written it on the paper, it's out of date. And you, I think if I'm right, the last time it was updated was 2019. Yeah, and that's the only time I've rewritten it, actually. Oh, so it's been, it's been reprinted and stuff. But um, yeah, the only time we've updated it is the, that fifth anniversary one. Yeah. So here's the, here's the rub or the, the, the question you said. It was ready. It's a book for the 2020s. Presumably in 2019, you didn't know what was going to beset uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly in 20 uh, March of 2020 in, in Britain anyway. So the question I have for you is, is to what extent, if at all, there's been any change in your viewpoint? Is it reinforced? Is it, um, has it made you ponder any of them? Any, any, any changes that you think are going to come out of this with regard to your philosophy? Um, the philosophy and the approach and the approach absolutely nothing um what i would say is that the the aim of the book is to also be like deeply practical you know so the ninja email chapter is like here's how to get your email in outlook here's the folders to create like it's really like practical in the detail and of course i think the the thing that has changed dramatically in the 2020s because of of covid is uh the the ability of people to work remotely and that becoming the norm 
which I think will just be the 2020s now. Um, it feels to me like, a, you know, a lot of companies are making those noises now about, okay, we're going to go back to hybrid. We're going to stay remote for a long time. And I actually think that really makes everything else that's in my book even more relevant because a lot of it, you know, the, the, the strength and the weakness of my book and my approach is that it relies on you having some level of autonomy to manage your own attention. Right. And so that is, that's more difficult if you're working in an office where you have set tasks at set times, but when you're working on your own steam and maybe your kids are around and maybe you're doing a school run and you're doing an hour less here and then adding an hour on later and having that greater autonomy around uh, your schedule. And also because you're at home and you're more on your own, you're able to be more self-aware around when you have your best mental energy. Then I think everything else in the book is, you know, the good news is, uh everything else in the book is it like even more the case i think and even more relevant well i i would argue that the children tend to interrupt at um unexpected times or yeah time. absolutely yeah and they they might cry in the middle of the night and so your sleep yeah. is interrupted and and it'll pay back especially when you have to do homeschooling for those of them for those of the people that do one of the things that you talked about just now was um, doing things that matter. And as I scan the book, I'm always attentive to the idea of purpose. Mm. Mission. So I was going to, I was going to wonder to what extent, I mean, it's a little bit of a, a you know, an abstract concept, but in, in a very practical book, how does purpose fit into constructing a productive ninja? Um, well, I can only really answer that for me, I think. Go for it. Um, which is to say that I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily believe that there is, that we, you know, we're put on this earth for one purpose, right? I think this whole like, find your purpose and, you know, find, you make your passion your work and all this kind of stuff is like, it can be really daunting for a lot of people. And I think I've always worked in a way that has been purpose driven and there's a lot of stuff that motivates me. There's a lot of stuff I want to change. There's a lot of stuff that annoys me in the world that I want to do something about. Um, and that's kind of how I see purpose is I think it's kind of multi-layered. There's multiple, I have multiple purposes and, you know, I, I'm just somebody who partly, I, I feel like I've been very lucky over the years in that, like, I've always managed to find myself in situations where I'm I'm doing stuff that I believe in and love. And I recognize fully that that's like, that's a total privilege. Um, not everybody has that. Um, but I believe that if, if it's possible to get somewhere around that, that space, then in whatever way that mean, in whatever that looks like to you, um, to work in a way that is driving forward something that you're passionate about and you have some purpose around and feel some energy around, then like go for it, you know? And there's a lot, I, I've worked with a lot of people over the years that have, haven't had that, but also have worked on a, on a path to kind of, you know, quit their job or do something else or, or like pivot their career or whatever. And I think life's too short to be sat there doing stuff that you don't really care about for that many hours a week. Um, so for me, that's just, a, that's just a, it's a given really for me that um, I like, I'd rather work you know for very little money which let's face it often as an author that's what you're doing <laughs> um but doing something that i'm really passionate about and i care about rather than working for a million pounds a year for uh something that i 
don't really believe in. And so and that's, you know, so it, I, I'll always put that above money. It's so important to put that in perspective. If you, if you want the shiny castles and 16 cars, then okay, that's, that's what you're doing. And hopefully you'll recognize how that's really important for you when you retire and, and you're faced with your demise. What are you going to do with all those toys? Um, one of the things you talked, you, you walked in, you, sorry, you walked, you worked in charities and, and now you're running your own business more as an entrepreneur. I was wondering how these things differ for someone who's working in a large organization. We mentioned how charities are different from a large enterprise and working as an entrepreneur or, or a sole trader. To what extent these elements change or what nuance can we bring to people who are coming to this from a different type of experience? That's a good question. Um, I think, I mean, a couple of things to say. First is when you work for, I think charities are a really amazing grounding if you then want to set up your own business or work in someone else's business, because there's, you learn a lot by having to achieve something in a charity and there just being no budget at all, right? And so you have to, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think, you know, having worked in a charity for a good few years where it was really hard to get funding for what we wanted to do. And then the funder didn't want to pay for the salaries. And it's like, yeah, but this work is done by people. People need paying. Like, you know, all these things are really big um, issues for a lot of charities. And I think there's a lot wrong with the world of charity, uh, particularly because of the way people who don't work in charities intersect and interact with charities. So for example, you've got an absolutely like skewed position where there's a, there's a certain uh, couple of sectors of charities and you can probably guess which ones they are, I'm not gonna name them, but ones where a lot of people give their fortunes to them in their wills that have an embarrassment of riches actually they have a lot of money and then there's thousands of charities doing tireless brilliant work on an absolute pittance and they can't get money from government and it's very difficult to get money from uh, you know even from lo local government these days is is so um, screwed that there's amazing work that can't happen because there isn't the money. And then yet there's other charities that are sitting on big piles of cash and property portfolios and everything else. And so it's a really, it's a really tricky, it's a really tricky industry. And I think when I was in charity, I have to be honest, I thought that anybody who worked for major corporates um, was just more talented than me. Like I just had this weird bias in my head, mainly because of sort of, you know, childhood relationships to money and things like that, where it was like, okay, so we're like the second, we're the second best with a poor relation because we work in charities. Um, and actually, I would say that that is like, I've, that's been completely uh, blown up for me in the years since, more because I've worked with brilliant people in all kinds of organizations, right? So there's brilliant people working in local councils, there's brilliant people working in corporates, and there's brilliant people working in charities too. Um, and the more I've, the more I've seen that, the more I've realized that there is just no, yeah, there's no sort of hierarchy of talent in different sectors. It's, you know, you, you find talent in different sectors. And then also there's, there's people who lack talent who seem to do quite well in all sectors as well. Um, so I think it stood me in good stead, you know, um, that, that working in charities in the early part of my career. And 
I, I, I mean, I still volunteer with a couple of charities now, and I would, uh, I would definitely not rule out going back to it at some point in my career. It kind of still, in a way, even though it's not been my home for sort of 12 or 15 years, it kind of feels like my home, right? Like I still know a lot of people in that world and, um, and, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm really inspired by um, what a lot of those organizations are doing. So it kind of still feels like home to me somehow. So I need to give a, a mental note, hopefully um, a, a follow-up email, introduce you to a chap called Patrick Jinks, who does a podcast uh, helping not-for-profit organizations, because ultimately it is different. Like you're saying, there's no budget. You don't oftentimes have a stick because they're volunteers and you can't sort of say, well, I'm going to dock you pay. I'm going to fire you. Firing a volunteer? <laughs> what kind of a crazy world is that? And yet there's such a benefit to being more productive and useful because that's sort of the bad omen or reputation that charities have that were, they're not effective and, and productive yeah. in their usages. They're wasting money. God forsake, they're not good enough. And that kind of a, an attitude that we can have with them. But that's also my, I guess, my hobby horse with how society interacts with charities. It's not just about um, charitable giving and wills and all that sort of stuff but it's also just to do with you know that whole notion that people have of i want to give money to charity but i don't want it to go on on core costs or i don't want it to go on salaries you know i don't want it to be spent on marketing it's like well how are they supposed to you know push their agenda and and do this work if it's not with people and with marketing and stuff um and i think things like comic relief children in need are just incredibly damaging for the charity sector um and that's a, a sort of hobby horse of mine i find the whole idea that i can't say i can't send you an email minter and say i really believe in let's say prostate cancer and the cause of doing research around prostate cancer so because i really believe in that here are some facts and figures that might help you to make a decision but like would you like to give some money no i can't do that i have to i have to email you and say I'm going to run a really long way and be inconvenient for six months. It's like, well, why? Like, why, why is that the, the, the sort of mechanism rather than do you care about this too? This feels like a big deal to me. You know, can we just have a conversation about it? Like what, you know, this whole thing of like sitting in a bath of baked beans or doing some crazy zany challenge. Like, I just think it really belittles the idea that these things are really important and I think there's an awful lot of people who, when they think of charity, they say, well, I gave some money for the office comic relief thing six months ago, so I'm done. So I think it also gives people an out and it separates people. And then, and then you, you know, you've got the whole like white savior complex with comic relief. And there's a whole load of stuff that I just feel is very um, problematic and damaging. And, you know, I think if you clear, I, I get why those things happen, but I think if you clear them out of the way, you, you offer up a bigger opportunity, which is for people to connect with their more local areas more. And, you know, and, and kind of, we could find better ways for people to interact with local need and to solve local problems. And I think, I think that's something that we don't do well enough. Hmm. We could probably talk about that for quite a while. Yeah, that's a whole nother thing, eh? <laughs> So I have two, two last questions to fit in. One is um, maybe tackling the prior question differently or, or making it more explicit to the notion of emails. Because it is... <laughs> From comic relief to emails, is that, that's a first on a podcast. Well, you had, we had an email in comic relief. <laughs> there you had an email. Um, 
so emails are are pretty much the bane of everyone's existence and you have this strategy of getting to zero which um i tend to follow for myself maybe done a little differently and i i can't help but think that my freedom to do it my way as an individual author like you is different than if i'm working in a large organization where i have i'm in copy bcc and the volume of political messages that keeps coming in and how you tackle them how does it change managing your emails if you're working in a large enterprise to versus us who are working more as solopreneurs or or more independent well i think a lot of the principles are the same and then the problems get scaled right so yes that 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 political problem around ccing and bccing that just scales the problem of volume right so that you just end up someone ends up with you know 180 emails instead of 18 um so but then i think the tactics of how to solve that are the same which is you start off by uh, what i call hacking which is about making finding the ways to make one decision about multiple emails um which basically if you sort them by subject or you sort them by from you very quickly see who the biggest offenders are in your in your inbox um and then processing so then going through one by one but you're asking a really specific question which is like is there an action that i need to take here um and that processing part of it is is different from replying to them but it's doing the thinking and so moving some of those ones that are going to need a bit more attention and more thinking um into a separate folder into a separate space so you can almost like break down the the task of email into the first part of it is hacking which is quite a kind of you know lazy shortcutted um sort of initial sif prioritization uh, kind of thing uh, processing which is like now i need to actually put some thinking on this and then the final bit is actually the work itself you know so if you break that down into kind of three different sections um or three different stages then it just makes it easier but what that you know the aim of inbox zero really is to spend as much time outside of your inbox as possible um i see uh i see someone's inbox as not their to-do list i see it as a list of everybody else's priorities right so if you're spending if you're using your email as your to-do list your to-do list is everybody else's priorities not yours and then by getting outside of the inbox that's where you create great work like very few of the most important things that you've done or are most famous for in your life or career were like hey graham sent an amazing email you know it's like i it might be that i had some amazing thoughts that i then wrote down in an email but probably it's more likely graham wrote a book or produced this podcast that really helped or had an interaction that really helped or was face to face with someone or whatever those are the things that matter more and you know no one really gets famous for being good at email so i think i just want i wanted to ask you a personal question that's my part yeah. um i tend to view my drafts as my to-dos because mm. what i do is i move them out of my inbox but then i i say i got to answer that one i don't want to answer it now i need to reflect on it i need to think about it or yeah. i i want to do it when i'm when i'm ready when the the context has changed for example, I have um, about five people who wrote me and said, I want to see you after the lockdown. So I've put those as drafts. 
and I've oh, I put them in a folder as well, but they're in my draft folder prepared for post lockdown and they're they're titled as such and because Gmail doesn't allow you to put you know, the drafts in a folder they're they, they they live in my draft so I'm wondering how do you manage your drafts or do you think that I'm balmy or should be changing my um well I personally would say Outlook is a much better tool than Gmail for uh, for just how you manage email but I would say that um, so what you said at the beginning there was that your drafts folder, you view that as your to-do list. Yes. I, I, so I, I prepare, I, I, I'll, I'll see a message. I'm not prepared to send it. I'm going to start it. Or I, I identify when I want to send that. Or my, they yeah. might have said, for example, catch me back at the end of March. Yeah. So I would say that could be part of your to-do list, but that's not your to-do list. Oh no, it's not. So it is. You're right. You're right. It's yeah. not total to-do list. But I just think of it in my email Sort of ecosystem that's where the to-dos are yeah so i would say i mean one of the things you can do with um with outlook is you can send uh in fact you can do this in gmail as well so you can you could send those emails to whatever the the app that you're using uh like you know to manage your projects and actions is i use an, an app called todoist which is a kind of dedicated uh task management kind of tool basically and it allows me to to list all of the things that i'm doing project by project and then also place by place so here's what i'm going to do in the office here's what i'm going to do at home and being able to kind of interplay and slice and dice between those two things is a really important sort of component of of well of my book productivity ninja and also i just think of the best uh the best way of working uh obviously i would say that but so i think you know having the ability to forward those emails to your task manager and then you can come back to them as emails when when you need them to be emails but like right now they're not your to-do list because they're they're things that they're actually they where they should be right now is on a waiting for list that's it exactly waiting to the end of lockdown right. if this then that um, if if lockdown finishes then then so yeah. um last question uh, graham that i wanted to talk about and um because you talk a lot about different apps and, and they're very useful and interesting uh, and and, and yet there may be two different opinions. Uh, big tech for you, friend or foe? Big tech, as in Facebook and Instagram and Facebook, you know, all that stuff. Um, foe, yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, I haven't been on Facebook for years. I begrudgingly have Instagram because it feels like um, the main social media platform. Um, I left Twitter a long time ago because it just turned into a cesspit. Um, I am very, I won't have Amazon Alexa or Siri or any of those things in my house. Um, yeah, like I'm quite, I'm quite suspicious of the privacy aspects of those things. And I'm a big fan of, um, uh, you know, Geron Lanier, who he was, he actually shot to prominence in that social dilemma um but documentary was great to see but, before for sure yeah but he's got a couple of books which um i think are really slept on you know people don't read these books enough but he's got a book called who owns the future and then there's another one which is i think it's called why you should delete all of your social media apps or so i can't remember the title of that book but they're both really good books and uh he comes from that big tech kind of world and so he doesn't come at it with this kind of judgment that these things are evil but he comes at it as a judgment like this is how it's got out of hand and this is what we need to be doing um differently around it he talks about the business models 
Yeah, and of course the business model, uh, he has a lovely line actually, which um, he says in that film, which is like, uh, you know, the classic thing is, if you're not paying for it, um, you know, you're not the customer, you're the product. And he says, well, yeah, but it goes one step further than that. So you're not the product, you are not the product, you making some small and subtle and unrecognized changes to your behavior is the product. And that is sinister. You know, if, we, if you really think about that, like the manipulation of you is what they're monetizing, not you or your attention. They don't care about your attention. They care about you being, your behavior being changed. And I think, you know, we've seen that on a geopolitical front multiple times in the last few years, how the recklessness of those apps has just caused just undeniable chaos in the world. And I just... Yeah, I kind of despair at a future that goes more down that path. And I think we're probably at a point where it starts to get rectified. But yeah, that's why I won't have Siri or Alexa in my house. <laughs> Graham, a uh, product ninja as you are, you have on top of that three books or at least two coming out now, right? In 2021, you have- Yeah, I have one, one that just came out and then one that's out in May. Right. So gosh, darn. Wow. Uh, tell us where, which, which ones those are and how to get them and also how to track you if you allow people to do such silly things like that. <laughs> track. <laughs> Come back to the previous question. So the two books, uh, the one that came out in January uh, is called How to Have the Energy. And the backstory to it really briefly is I was struggling with the 4 p.m. slump every day I got a, an amazing nutritionist called Colette Hennigan to fix that for me by changing my diet. And so the book is a summary of all of that. So it's called How to Have the Energy. And the idea is it's um, how to eat well to have the best energy for work and life. Um, so that's out right now uh, with my co-author, Colette Hennigan. And then the one that comes out in May is called How to Fix Meetings. And it's also co-authored. It's with um, Hayley Watts, who is one of our brilliant Productivity Ninja team um, here in the UK. Uh, and it's, yeah, it, it kind of goes into meetings from the macro to the micro level. So it's like how to avoid being in too many of them, uh, how to have really brilliant practices when you are in a meeting and ultimately how to uh, create spaces through your meetings that share attention in a really generous way. Because I think meetings, when they're done well, are a really rare uh, they have this really rare quality in life, which is humans getting together and sharing their attention generously with each other. And I think that's um, something that we need to think more about. So how to fix meetings, that's out in May. Um, and I'm actually working on a new book, which is not going to be out for a couple of years, but the subject is uh, kindness as a trait in leadership that's very undervalued and how to bring more kindness to your leadership. So that's what I'm working on right now um and then in terms of connecting with me so yeah I, i'm on twitter but i don't ever check it like I, I one of my team is supposed to check the dms every now and again but like it's a bit neglected but i'm on linkedin at graham Alcott and um and at uh and on instagram just at graham Alcott on instagram uh, and i also have this uh uh sunday email called rev up for the week which is like a, a positive or productive thought for the week ahead it goes out every sunday and if you go to graymalcott.com forward slash links, uh, then it's one of the options on there that you can sign up for that. Superlative. Well, Graham, what a wonderful fun chat that was. Gave me energy, didn't have to eat, didn't have to take any caffeine. <laughs> Thank you, Sophie, for the intro. And uh, carry on, Graham. Thanks very much for being on. 
pleasure. And I have to say, I, I think probably all of those questions are things I've not been asked before. So that for me is always a pleasure as a, as a podcast. So yeah, thank you, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find all the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.